Hey, how you doing? I'm Steve Fall and welcome to another one. This episode of Being Freelance is supported by Freelancer Magazine, helping you grow a freelance business you love. Sharing inspirational stories from freelancers around the world, freelance-specific business advice, practical tips, trends, events and lifestyle features. Freelancers across 25 countries are already subscribed to Freelancer Magazine. Make yourself one of them at freelancermagazine.co.uk. There's a digital version too, but mm, get those sweet, glossy pages in your hands. And right now, let's find out what it's like being freelance for graphic designer and consultant Greg Bunbury. So often we're just chasing, 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 chasing as freelancers. And it's just having that space and really think about what's the value that I want to bring? What change do I want to bring? Not just for clients, but for everyone. What value can I give to the world? That's when things actually started to happen, when I just kind of gave up trying to get the job and just started thinking, do I actually want that job? The key is to build authority. The way to build authority is to build things that showcase your perspective and showcase what you think. Things didn't really change until I put a flag in the ground and that flag said, these are my values, this is what I believe, this is how I think work should be. And if people share those values, they would seek me out. Yeah, so there is Greg. His story coming up in a moment. He is a graphic designer, a creative consultant and a diversity and inclusion consultant and a public speaker and curates and designs the Black Outdoor Art Project. There's a lot to talk about. Also, want to remind you that the Being Freelance course exists. You're thinking about going freelance or maybe you've gone freelance in the past year or so, but you're thinking, I don't know, but I'm quite doing this right. Maybe you're struggling with your finances or contracts or finding clients or marketing yourselves or you know there's a lot to think about when you start out as a freelancer but that's okay because it's all covered in the course so go check it out won't you just click on the course button at beingfreelance.com okay let's crack on here from this week's guest and that is graphic designer and consultant greg bunbury based in london hey greg hi as ever how about we get started hearing how you got started being freelance Going back about 12 years ago, I used to work for a marketing agency as the uh, head of creative in the studio. I started as a uh, graphic designer and part of my job was to build and manage a roster of freelancers. Essentially, I met freelancers every week for a year. Uh, while this was going on, myself and my partner had a baby. Now, we both worked full time and we desperately needed more flexibility. I had been taking a lot of time off for childcare and eventually my boss said, you know, hey, this isn't really sustainable. There were some other factors with regards to the agency, but ultimately I took redundancy and decided to go it alone. But I did it because I had to do it. And this is really important Mm. as it pertains to the rest of my career. Uh, Because when we're in a situation where we have to freelance, where we have to look for the next check, where we have to look for the next payment to make rent or to pay a bill, we lack leverage and we lose options. And this becomes a very difficult space to operate in. But, you know, when I started, I never actually wanted to freelance. What I actually wanted was to start an agency. So that's what I did, or at least what I thought I was doing. So I was coming off a very senior agency position, producing award-winning work for this lovely agency. I decided, right, I'm going to set up my own shop. At the time, a lot of my friends were working in music and they seemed to struggle to find good creative. So I stepped in and started picking up a lot of work quite quickly. And the first niche I found myself was doing basically internet banner ads for record labels. 
I upskilled really fast, got to know the technology really quickly. It was all built around an app called Flash. If you're old and you're listening to this podcast, you know what Flash is. If you weren't sure whether you were old and you recognize Flash, that means you are old. So there you go. That's... But um, within a few months of this, uh, I had an office. I was hiring other freelancers. It really felt like I was on an upward uh, trajectory. Then out of the blue, Apple announced it would no longer support Flash which meant the ads couldn't be run on Mac OS or iOS. And uh, the program was eventually deprecated. And that was like a large rug just being pulled from right under me. Suddenly, all my work vanished. At this point, I had the realization that I wasn't really an agency. I hadn't built anything that was bigger than myself. So I stopped calling myself an agency and positioned myself simply as a freelancer for the entertainment industry. And then it took a lot of experiences and a lot of very heavy challenges before I understood what value meant and what value meant as a freelancer. And so kind of 10 years after this point, I start making a pivot into more socially focused and community orientated work. Crikey. Well, let's take a look at that that sort of 10 year gap in, in between there then. So you clearly work for massive brands at that agency. When you set up on your own, how did you overcome that uh, I guess that dilemma of what you could show in your portfolio? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, so essentially, I had to start again. But this wasn't the worst thing in the world. Because when we show our work and we show portfolios, I've seen so many portfolios that are entirely out of context. So I would get portfolios from people who have worked for uh, charity organizations, people who have worked for footwear brands, for luxury cars. Um, and these things are not all equal, especially when there's very little context in terms of either the portfolio review or the interview. So you have to be very, very tailored. And it was probably the first point in my career where I started thinking at least a little strategically. It wasn't really to the, the level that I think about my work now, but at least at the time I was like, okay, I'm getting work in music. I need to build all of my work in music until eventually, and this happened pretty quickly, my portfolio was entirely all music. And that helped so much for for that kind of 10-year period. And I made a conscious effort and decision to never show any of the work that I did at the agency. It's only really in the last couple of years that I've uh, used one of the case studies from my agency days on uh, my website. And when you do that, you state that it was with an agency, like you're clear. Very much Mm. so. So transparency is so important. And it's very important that we learn how to write case studies, contextualize the job, contextualize uh, where the work came from, what your role was specifically. And, you know, results are amazing if you're able to get them. I know with a lot of client work, that's not always possible. Just to jump back into your story then, you decide to sort of focus in on yourself as a as a freelancer. How did you start to build that? So after the bottom fell out of doing the initial internet banners, I pivoted. So I pivoted from flash banners to HTML5 banners because that was the uh, technology at the time that replaced flash. That went really well for a while, but then all my music clients started doing HTML5 banners in-house. So then I pivoted to film clients. And then when the film clients started doing HTML5 banners in-house, I pivoted to press ads and posters. And when the magazine started closing, I pivoted to album covers. (laughs) And then when streaming took over, I pivoted to video and animation. 
And through all this time, you know, I guess the positive part is that, you know, I am upskilling. But along the way, every project, every client becomes increasingly challenging because this is at the point when the uh, quote unquote gig economy kind of kicks in and briefs were just getting worse. Budgets were shrinking and the timelines just got shorter and shorter. I found myself working nights. I was, was working weekends, over-servicing every single job, talking to clients for hours at a time before I understood what a consulting call was. I was taking jobs with people who didn't align with my values, enduring toxic clients, workplaces and microaggressions. And, you know, I didn't have a choice. And this is in a time before diversity and inclusion was on anyone's agenda. So basically I became exhausted and burnt out and I was really struggling mentally physically and financially for a really long time I just wanted to give up but uh I'd been freelancing so long it was like you know I wasn't even viable to get a full-time job anymore (laughs) um in this period what I'm also doing is I'm looking around or I'm looking at the work that I'm doing in a slightly different way and I'm looking at what is valuable like what's valuable like what uh, what matters to people and I realized that in trying to figure out what mattered, I was doing a lot of uh, personal work at the time. I was doing a lot of side projects because I felt uh, I felt fairly kind of challenged being in the industry and I was going through a difficult time. I used this personal work as kind of part escape, but part therapy. But in doing the side work, what it actually gave me was a practice. Developing a practice is the thing that changed everything because suddenly I had a space and scope where I could work and work and work and work and work and I can get better and I can try things and I can experiment. The problem is with freelancing is because we're often going from job to job, there isn't always this space to develop our practice, whether we're a designer or whether you're an artist, whether you're a web designer or whether you're a UX designer, because you're usually following the demands of the brief or following the demands of the client. So there isn't always room to develop your own voice in your work. But in my kind of personal work in my side work I began to develop my own voice and in developing that voice I actually started to use my voice because I started speaking about my experience I started speaking about some of the situations I'd experienced racism within the industry difficulties within the industry and that gave me I guess I guess the beginnings of what I would call authority And that authority, coupled with my personal work, I was able to discover work that had meaning, or I didn't really know it had meaning at the time. I just knew that I felt different about doing that work than I did about 90% of my client work. Um, And that's when that side of my career started to develop. When you started doing those side projects, those personal projects, where Mm. were you sharing them? When I first started doing the personal projects, this was I guess just at the advent of social media. So I hadn't even really thought about social media as um, an outlay. Um, what I used to do more than anything was I would just search around for opportunities. So I would do things like design competitions. And I know everybody hates design competitions. I hate them. And I've spoken out against them for years and years and years. However, again, what it gave me was a practice. It gave me a constrained brief or project to work towards there were times when I did design competitions and never sent off the entries because it wasn't really about winning anything it was just about having a brief having a time frame and then building skills within that so you know in terms of being a professional 
you have to we have to treat it like a skill we have to learn how to be professional when i go in to work on a design project i'm not looking for inspiration i don't need a period to go off and get inspired because i'm a professional uh, i have all of this stuff in my head already and i use practices to develop that so initially i was doing things like design competitions and then when social media came around i found i guess an outlet but interestingly enough i got absolutely no take up on pretty much 90% of everything I did for about five years. There was one instance where my work uh, won a competition for a movie poster, a big Hollywood movie poster. And that was an interesting experience because, again, we're starting to start to be more focused on how I create value as opposed to me creating value for a client. So around that time, I started thinking, you know, uh, so many creators and designers around me were always kind of complaining about clients so I thought to myself well what happens if we remove the clients what happens if the job that we want to really work on or the client that we really want what if we become that client what if we become our own client and we just produce that work as though the work was out there as though the work was funded as though the work had a huge budget what would that do and what would that look like and that's how I started uh, treating a lot of my projects one thing that I used to do when I was just out of work or just you know, in between jobs, I would go around and I would redesign stuff that I saw. So I'd walk down Hmm. the high street and I'd look at like a cafe's like logo or whatever's on there, the front of their shop. And I'd go home and redesign it and send it to them. And I do the same for the local cinema and I do the same for the fishmonger. And I do, I would just walk around all day and just look for things to design. And I never got a single reply on anything that I sent out to them. But it didn't matter because I was getting better. I was getting better and I was getting better because I had a practice. So yeah, that was when things really started to turn around for me. There's there's obviously this sort of drive towards or realisation towards value that you keep mentioning. Was there a point where you where that all kind of fell into place, I guess? Uh, I don't know if I had a eureka moment, but I guess maybe... Five years ago or so, I saw an article on design for good or design for social. And when I saw that, I kind of, I really understood the principle of value inherited in in that kind of work and the work that I could potentially be doing. And suddenly I realized that in all that time, I'd been sat with clients and talking to them for hours and hours and hours. I never charged for it. I never understood that what I was offering was consultancy. I never understood that what I was delivering was consultancy. We were just focused on the thing that was being made. And when I saw the work of organizations like the uh, Design Council and what AIGA were doing, I realized that, oh my gosh, there's another way of doing this. There's another way of approaching this work. There's another way of creating value. And I also understood it implicitly, though I probably didn't verbalize it at the time, but it was linked to my authority. And so this is when I started developing the VOW principle. VOW is value, authority, leverage. And I didn't really know what I was doing, but I think the last, the last time, the last situation I was in when I came out and I was like, I knew I was on a different path. Um, I kept going for these um, prospective client meetings and I do these things all the time and I absolutely hated them. And the last one I went to was uh, for uh, a music management company. And I go in and um, I do my usual stuff. I start presenting. I'm presenting to maybe two people. 
and you know I load up my work and the first thing they say to me is do you have any other work apart from this I was like okay well that's a great start <laughs> and I'm like well you know this is my portfolio this is the thing that you saw when you got me in so this is actually my work but I carried on and I was like oh I had that sinking feeling in the back of my head and then sort of a third into my presentation the uh, managing director of the company walks in walks in and just starts talking over me and I was like oh okay I guess I'm not presenting anymore and then he proceeds to have a conversation with two of the other members in the room sits down you know I just go back to presenting then halfway through that he pulls out his phone starts looking at his phone has a conversation with someone else while I'm talking while I'm presenting kind of stands up looks me up to up and down and just walks out and after that meeting I came out and I was it just completely transformed me I was came out and the first thing I did was I said to the person I was meeting this isn't for me so you know I knew I wasn't going to uh, get any work with them but I knew I, I didn't want any work with them um, and I came out of that meeting and I decided that I was never going to enter a room with that little amount of leverage ever again and I never did I never went into any meeting or any situation with that kind of diminished amount of authority or value behind my work so how did you change it so that people were inviting you into their room almost wanting you already so the key is to build authority and the way to build authority is to build things that showcase your perspective and showcase what you think the problem is with freelancing especially in the creative industry is our work is always behind the client so you're always in service of a brief or solving a problem and that's fine because that's the nature of the work but in order to build authority we have to get in front of that so we have to get out from behind our work we have to get out behind the brand guidelines and behind the glossy sans serif typography so it has to be more about us so because I'd been speaking so much about representation in the industry, that kept happening. So magazines were reaching out and asking me to comment on what I thought about uh, the creative industry as a whole and marginalization and representation in the creative industry. And I just started developing that. And the more of that I developed, the more that my work went down a social angle, suddenly people started engaging me for what I thought as opposed to what I did. Even if all they wanted was what I did, even if somebody wanted me to design a flyer, they were contacting me because I stood for principles. The problem that many creative freelancers have is they are forced to go out and just basically try and sell themselves. You know, they're applying to every single opportunity. Everybody's applying to the, the same adverts. Everybody's writing to the same companies. People are just trying to get meetings or get in internships. But I found, or at least in my journey, that things didn't really change until I put a flag in the ground. And that flag said, these are my values. This is what I believe. This is how I think work should be. And if people share those values, they would seek me out. And that's the thing that changed the game for me. Love it. But creating that sense of authority through speaking and so on and being interviewed, how did you start that? Yeah, how did people know to come to you? So the first thing that I'd done that got any traction was the blog. The thing about a blog is that it's permissionless media. There are no gatekeepers. You're free to put out any perspective that you want, but it does a weird thing. It, it gives people something to hang on to and it attracts people. And one single blog post completely changed my career. I had read a, a Creative View review article on 
marginalized black designers at a time when I never worked with underrepresented designers in the industry. And this article blew my mind. It was uh, focusing on a handful of um, African-American designers. And it was amazing because I'd never heard of these guys. And, you know, at this point, I was by late 20s, early 30s. And it was such an impactful article. And I wrote a blog post on it. And what had happened was somehow the blog post got back to the person who wrote the article. It's a guy by the name of uh, John Daniel. And John got in touch with me. And he was a black art director. He was about 10 years older than me, much more experienced, much more senior. But he reached out to me and we became friends. And that opened the door to an entirely new network that I didn't even know exist. And it just changed everything. I saw work I'd never seen before. I was connected with people I would never would have been connected for. It was like I basically entered a community that I didn't know existed. And so by writing the blog and by doing it in its various forms it enabled me to have not only a point of view but it's what I call legacy content so it's content that exists in a space where it's not necessarily defined by my work even if it was about design or my professional experience but it exists in a space where by its content that speaks for me without me having to speak for it essentially so it gives me a way to or it gave me a way to reach people in a way that my work alone just never would have done. And that's the thing that I use to get comments and articles and interviews. And that stuff then builds into your authority and that authority gives you leverage. Because when you're in a position where you don't have to take the job, like if you set your stall out and your values are are pretty much enshrined and you're using your blog or your uh, YouTube channel or your Instagram and that's helping you build your voice. If you do that enough, you'll get to a point where you'll have enough leverage to be able to say no. And so when a job comes along and it's not right for you, you don't have to take it. And that for me has just been a a total game changer. Greg's great, isn't he? Back with him at the moment. But I want to just remind you that this episode is also made possible and supported by the lovely people at HREFs. If you want to get more Google traffic for your freelance business, you know it's something to do with SEO, but you're not quite sure where to start, check out HREFs Webmaster Tools. It's free. I've been using it recently for the Being Freelance website, and it trawls it, gives me a proper site audit, tells me what to do. Like, if I don't understand a term, I click it, and it tells me what it means, and then it tells me how to fix things uh, stuff like uh, what, what was i working on this week orphan links i didn't my poor little orphans there they all were with their ginger fright wigs and their tiny little dogs cleaning the floorways of being freelance.com don't worry we have given them their own little virtual daddy warbucks and everything's gonna be okay with them now only thanks to hrefs telling me they were there at all hrefs webmaster tools is what you want if you want to start getting more search traffic go to hrefs.com slash aw Ahrefs is A-H-R-E-F-S dot com slash A-W-T. There's a link to that as well at beingfreelance.com. Okay, thank you, Ahrefs. Now back to our conversation with Greg Bunbury. Was there a point when that next game-changing job came to you that you remember where it was different? I think it was more of an opportunity than a job. At the time, I was still doing my, my side projects but they had started to take a different shape. I was doing a lot more work that was focused around typography and this idea of communicating very complex ideas into very simple formats. And I had done a poster about Eric Garner 
who was uh, murdered by a New York City police officer in 2014 in New York. And I'd done a, a kind of a tribute poster for that. And that was really the thing that set me on the path that I was on today. Because as I said earlier, it's really functions like a flag in the ground. It really set me out as, you know, this is what I believe and I believe it uh, very strongly. So from that opportunity, that's when I started getting more interest in, I guess, the social and community side to what I do. Mm. So if we look at where you're, you're at today, what are the things that you do? What, what are the income streams that you have? Because it's quite broad, it feels. Uh, it is broad, but I think it comes from a very similar place. So essentially, I help brands and organizations connect with marginalized audiences. And that basically is in two forms. There's the design um, side of it, which can be anything from actual graphic design to creative direction. And then there's there's the consultancy side of it. I consult on diversity and inclusion for a few D&I organizations. But all of this work is from a similar place in terms of what's driving the work. So it's focused on process over output and it's focused on the values of how things are made. So it's all made with the principle that the way we make things is as important, if not more important than what gets made. So I have clients where I only do design or creative work for, and then I have organizations that I just consult for. And interspersed in between the two is the public speaking and the workshops and the mentoring and no sessions. So it feels quite disparate, but it's all from, I guess, the same ethos driving it. Oh, yeah. No, totally. Sorry, I didn't mean broad as in um, you, you can see that it all spreads out from that focal point, but that you have a, a lot of different things going on. Um, when you started being approached or approaching people to do consulting, how did you know how to price yourself? How did you get on with that challenge? So I did my research. Um, So in terms of what consulting sessions were, and I did a lot of studying of people who were in spaces where that were more driven by a consulting approach to creativity. So, I mean, there's there's two ways to broadly look at creative roles. You have the, the labor, the nuts and bolts of putting something together, and then you have the thinking that went into it. I had been doing the nuts and bolts side of it for a very long time. And now I was interested in how do you, how do you quantify the other part? How do you quantify the thinking? And yeah, I did, I read a lot of books. I read a lot of stuff by uh, Seth Godin. I looked at a lot of what designers like uh, Chris Doe and the future were doing in, in over in the States. And this research gave me enough input where I had a, a kind of a reasonable expectation of how much value to to expect but certainly in terms of the consulting and the speaking work I knew that this was a process of building authority so I wasn't really focused on how much I could get for it at the time so it was, I just knew that the more I did the better I get the more I did the better I get and that's how I've been treating a lot of that work so it's been quite fluid I do have there is a set level of expectation, just the same as being a designer or being a creative director. There are industry standard rates that if you're pricing your work, you should be around that rate. If you price yourself too cheap, it feels a bit risky. And if you price yourself too expensive, again, it feels quite risky. So there's still this sense of mitigating risk going through my head uh, when I price in the work. But I think I've reached a kind of a comfortable equilibrium 
of uh, time, labour, value. We touched upon the blog. You also launched a podcast? I did, yes. So in this space that I was uh, primarily interested in, the thing that I found was most powerful in terms of the work I was doing were the connections. And I really understood that from a lot of my socially focused projects, it was really about the connections. Obviously, the work itself has a certain level of importance and a focal point, but the connections were the things that really defined how those projects were and how they felt. And it was really the connections in the the, the most positive client experiences. It really came from that side of it. So I wanted to develop something that was that kind of spoke to that, but also gave artists and designers and creatives a platform to share that with the world. Because I understood that so much of this is visibility and you can't be what you can't see. So it's really important to have those pathways, especially if your pathway is somewhat unconventional. So at this point in my career, everything that I was taught about being a creative or being a designer at school and university um, was really geared around one pathway. And that pathway was that you graduate, you get a job at a company, you're in-house at a company or you're at an agency. And that was basically it. But then I started thinking, like, what if you wanted to build a career that wasn't about doing commercial graphic design work? What if you want to work with communities or community organizations or nonprofits or arts-based organizations or charities? What would that look like? And because we don't have as many of those models, we don't have as many of those pathways, it's a much trickier route to navigate. And I felt like with my own experience, because I hadn't really seen anybody do the kind of work that I ultimately wanted to do, I recognized the need for it. And so my attempt at doing a podcast was really to pay back John for what he did for me with his article in Creative Review all those years ago. It was to try and do the same thing. It was trying to give an aspiring designer or a creative something visible to really zero in on. So that's what created the the, uh, the genesis of the podcast. And it's been an amazing experience. I, I feel very privileged to have spoken to these brilliant creatives who are, you know, obviously all much better than me. But yeah, it's just been great being able to meet them, you know, just to meet them alone, you know, even irrespective of the podcast. And to call some of them friends is just been fantastic. Other than inspiring others, has it helped you in other ways? Oh, 100%, because it's helped crystallize my thinking around uh, design and being in the industry to the point where the basis of the podcast is now informing my kind of latest venture, I guess, which is about supporting young creators in the industry from marginalized backgrounds. So now I'm building a raft of content around that one purpose. And it's a purpose that's been really born out of those conversations. That's really been born out of those connections. Cool. So now your your content, as you put it, is kind of like aimed at helping young designers, right? So I'm developing a platform which will specifically be looking at developing content for uh, young marginalized creatives entering the industry. It's called Creatives of Diverse Ethnicity or Code, and that platform will specifically deal with that content. My content on my personal channel will still be based around my diversity and inclusion work, uh, the Black Outdoor Art Project, and all the other bits that I work on. So I think this way it gives a real focus and a real niche 
to that particular content because you know you're right in saying that uh what i do feels very broad it is very broad and that in itself has been something that i've not necessarily struggled with but i think it's quite important to create channels or create niches in the work that we do because it just makes it easier for other people in terms of what they're looking for so yeah code will be its own platform and it'll be its own thing and there'll be podcasts and videos and just general content that helps people navigate their way through the industry who are perhaps from underrepresented backgrounds it feels like everything has really taken off for you when perhaps you stop i don't know <laughs> forgive me if i phrase this the wrong way but like when, when i stopped trying <laughs> when you stopped yeah when you stopped trying to be hired and just started focusing on actually what you cared about and saying what you saw or wanted to see the change to be 100 percent. so often we're just chasing 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 as freelancers and it's just having that space to step back and really think about what's the value that i want to bring what's the value what change do i want to bring not just for clients not just for organizations but for everyone what value can i give to the world and i think it's when we start looking at our work through that lens or at least for me that's when things actually started to happen when i just kind of gave up trying to get the job and just started thinking do i actually want that job or do i want a job in a different space and if i did get a job in a different space how would i want it to be and i'm just very privileged to be in a position now where i can do that i can create these projects and these environments that are in alignment with my values and what i believe mm. i can't not ask about the black outdoor project tell us what that is yep so that started in the wake of uh, george floyd and black lives matter in 2020 i think the first one we did was in uh i think beginning of june what happened with that was because i'd been doing so much in i guess more of a social community space just developing like little self-initiated projects and it really kind of brought people into my orbit and one of those people was a, a friend of mine who uh, runs an outdoor media agency here in London. He saw the work and was really, I guess, drawn to it. So around the time of the George Floyd incident, when brands and organizations here in the UK started to react themselves, one of the things that he proposed to me was, could they run some of my artwork on their billboards as a measure of solidarity or support with the uh, the black community and initially I said no I wasn't comfortable with my work being used in a way that might be construed as virtue signaling and I was just quite uncomfortable with the the initial idea but then my friend was like look you know let's talk about it let's discuss it I mean obviously he's um, a white guy and a agency owner and we really hashed it out it was also a moment where I felt very heard and I felt seen and I felt like he got where I was coming from and he understood my principle and he understood my history. This kind of shared sense or at least a deeper sense of understanding and empathy. And so I went home and designed a, a new poster and that first one went up. And again, it just, it just changed everything overnight. And I guess one of the things that is maybe noteworthy about it was I, I was never paid to do that work. So sometimes when I speak to younger creatives, the 
topic of free work always comes up. Mm. But there's a difference between uh, free and incentivized. In this case, in the project that I did, my incentive was really to make an impact on my environment. It was really to kind of have my say. It was really to put forward this idea that my culture was not monolithic, that we had a range of perspectives and viewpoints and they weren't all the same and they didn't need to be all the same, that this was the key to building empathy. And you know, this is essentially the uh, the values that that drive what I do today. So that first billboard went up and that was huge, absolutely massive. Well, just in terms of like the uh, response that we got and people reaching out and it was a really big deal. It was a really big deal for me. And the agency were like, well, that was fantastic. Do you want to do more? Why don't you do like a whole series of them? But I didn't want the work to just be about my perspective because that was kind of the opposite of what I was gearing towards. So I invited a lot of the designers and creatives that I met through John Daniel. John, again, earlier in the story is the guy that introduced me to many of these designers in the first place and all of this happened because i wrote a blog on an article he wrote (laughs) back in 2006 2007 so because of john introducing me to all these creatives years and years and years and years later in 2020 when it came to me to go okay you know what i'm going to put this this idea this concept out to my community in the creative community to people who are from similar backgrounds to mine and I'm going to get them to do posters and I'm going to say what do you want to express what do you want to talk about how do you see the world what is your perspective and yeah we, it's been running for two years we've put posters up in uh, London Bristol and Leeds the posters have been seen by millions of people by this point they've been shared up and down the country all over the world and it's been just an absolute joy for me and you know but I don't want it to sound as though I'm just doing it because it's fun because we're dealing with a lot of painful and very heartfelt topics but just in terms of the impact that it's made in the creative community and my personal community and the connections that everybody's made as a result of this work the collaborations across nationalities and races and genders and identities and all of the connections that it's allowed us to to create and the work that I've been able to go on and do in diversity inclusion as a result has just been an absolute pleasure and an honour. Oh, that's awesome. You know, we'll put links at beingfreelance.com as we do for all of our guests. So if you're thinking, uh, I want to see this, uh, we'll put Greg's website and links through at beingfreelance.com. Now, Greg, I always do this thing where I ask for three facts about yourself to make two true, one a lie, and let me figure out the lie. What do you have for me? All right, uh, number one. <laughs> it's almost like you rolled up your sleeves. <laughs> Straight in there. All right. <laughs> number one, I'm a published poet. Hmm. Number two, I didn't own a computer until I was in my mid-20s. Right. Number three, I once sang a proposed jingle as part of a client pitch <laughs> in the meeting. <laughs> Did it happen? Um, Okay. You didn't own a computer. You were doing all this design work without a computer into your mid... Didn't own a computer until I was in my mid-20s. Actually, I don't know how old you are. I'm 45 years old. So you're in your 40s. So what did you do if you wanted to design something outside of 
when you maybe were working in a, in someone else's office? That's a very good question. It's a very good question. And I think it's a, a really key distinction. And it's something that really didn't occur to me till much later. But, you know, make sure you have the right tools for the job. <laughs> you know, it, it really makes life a lot easier. You're a published poet. What was the title of the poem? Oh, God, uh, it was something really, really pretentious. I can tell you that. And it still exists somewhere. I saw it years ago. It was published in America. What was it published in then? Uh, a, a book. It was a, a, a kind of compendium of poems. And because of, due to the, the wonders of the early internet, I, I pitched this, this thing. And they were like, yeah, cool, okay. Wow. And it was published. And I was just like, oh, wow, okay. This is odd because you sound equally convincing and yet vague on both of those. Right. So the third one was you sang a jingle in a client pitch meeting. What was the product or the pitch for? I won't say the brand name and I, I'll probably leave the, uh, the agency out of it. But we pitched a brand that the key to the brand was in the name and in the idea behind the name. And when you, when you design a brand or when you're proposing a brand to a client, you have to show the applications of the work. So you have to show, this is what it would look like on a bus shelter. This is what it would look like on a t-shirt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we were like, okay, well, you know, we, we really want to show this idea of how it could be a jingle. And so it's kind of like, you know, how, okay, I guess we'll just, I guess we'll just, we'll write a jingle. Uh, and uh, uh, one thing about me is um, I did a lot of music as a kid. I've even signed a record deal, believe it or not. I was going to use that as one of wow. the, the three, but um, I won't now. So I was like, well, okay, you know, this is something that I can do. And of course, you can't just save a jingle. <laughs> so, I mean, like, who wants to do that? So I, I stepped up and I took one for the team. Can you remember their reaction? Just utter, utter silence. <laughs> just, if you can just imagine, if you can just imagine silence and then take that down a couple of notches. <laughs> <laughs> okay Just, yeah uh, i want that to be true okay i want that to be true the published poet i find it hard to believe that you wouldn't remember the name of it and yet equally the idea of just sending something off on the off chance and then it happening i'm still struggling with the thought of you not having a computer which sounds till my mid 20s ladies and gentlemen but, mid to, but, mid but not just in your mid 20s but in your mid 20s as a designer that's the you know sure not everybody has a computer i get that i don't want to sound like <laughs> but as a designer and now i'm gonna say that's the lie wrong unfortunately oh, what? the jingle is the lie no yep i didn't own a computer until my mid-20s when i was studying at university my university was in london and i just spent a lot of time in the library and that's how i did everything i just did everything in the library and I did that. And then when I graduated, my computers were really expensive. Yeah. But anytime someone would ask me to do a piece of design work, I found at the time there was this place in Holborn. It's not doesn't exist anymore. But you could go in and rent a Mac station. You could go in and sit at a Mac and you could use it till like three o'clock in the morning. And I just did that um. for years, for years and years and years. And then uh, the more I kind of worked in offices, I just used computers in the office. And then it got to the point where I can't, I think it was my mum or something who was just like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> like, what, what are you doing? And I was just like, oh, yeah, I should probably have one of those. Yeah. Now, Greg, if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, what would that be? 
So it'd be so much. Oh, buy a computer would be the first one. Um, <laughs> I guess the key thing I could tell my younger self is to figure out what matters. Just figure out what matters. That's it. It's not about the labor. It's not about doing the thing. It's about what matters. What matters to the client, what matters to you. That's the thing that makes a difference. That's the thing that moves the needle. And it can be what matters in terms of, from a financial point of view, something that's high value, that's very important to the client, or it might be something of value in terms of how the client works, what the client's ethics are, or the values are, or what your values are, or what your beliefs are, or what your ethics are. Just figure out the thing that matters and just steer towards that. Greg, so good to talk to you. Do go follow and read and listen and check out everything that Greg is doing. Uh, links at beingfreelance.com. And if, like myself and Greg, you're a freelancing parent as well, don't forget there's the other podcast I do. It's called Doing It For The Kids. I do that with Frankie from the Doing It For The Kids community. You can find that. Well, clearly you can find that wherever you found this podcast. Just search for Doing It For The Kids and it'll be great to see you over there. Uh, but for now, Greg, thank you so much. Good luck with all you're doing and all the best being freelance. Thank you so much thanks for having me it's been amazing okay there we go hope you enjoyed greg remember there's a lot more where that came from check back for your podcast apps and go to beingfreelance.com you'll also find links to the sponsors of this episode freelancer magazine and hrefs thank you to them click on them go show them some love and if you like what i'm doing with being freelance remember you can support me on my ko-fi page that's beingfreelance.com slash coffee because basically i'm a freelancer like you i make videos and podcasts for businesses and this is what i do on the side so if you fancy supporting being freelance if it's been helpful to you you can do that simply go to beingfreelance.com slash coffee but for now thank you so much for listening and i'll see you very soon for another one you have a great week being freelance